0: Well, amen, I'm, uh, I'm thankful that we, we sang that this morning. Just declaring our need and dependency upon God. We need him. We need his wisdom. We need his guidance. We need his healing. We need his comfort. There's a, there's a lot that, that we, we come this morning confessing our, our need before God. If you were on our, our family call this week, I, I shared with you Second Chronicles 20, verse 12, where the king prayed and he asked, as the, the armies were coming against Judah, he, he prayed, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. What we're, we're gathered here to do today is to turn our eyes upon God, to turn our eyes to him. We don't know what to do, but we turn our eyes upon him for wisdom, for healing, for comfort, for guidance. We turn our eyes upon him. I love Matt Chandler, pastor in Texas. Many of you are probably familiar with him. He said, we're not going to whiteboard our way out of this. There's not some logical connection to figure out how we're going to navigate this, in fact, anything that we come up with is probably just as broken as our government. It's all idolatry. It's idolatry. So you need to be careful. I want to give you this warning as we step in. Most of the things that you're turning to or pointing to or blaming, is probably, you're probably in a way turning to another idol and lifting up that idol saying, this is the answer, this is the hope. And the reality is, is those idols will fail you also. The only hope, the only rock, the only thing that's not shifting sand is Jesus. And we get an opportunity this morning to come and be reminded of the hope that we have in Jesus. As Christians, as believers in Christ, we live as residents in the city of God while living in the city of man. That's what First Peter is, is basically going to describe to us, and that's what we're gonna be spending the next 17 weeks discovering how do we, as believers in Jesus, live in the city of man, knowing that we are residents and citizens of the city of God. we, we need wisdom, we need direction, we need guidance as to how to do that. And maybe you're here this morning and you're trying to figure out, how do we navigate this? How do we live in the midst of this? And if you're experiencing any type of longing, if you're experiencing any sense of brokenness, of like, this is not the way it's supposed to be, that is your longing for a real, true home that is not going to be found on this earth. It will only be when he comes and establishes the new earth. We're a part of that kingdom. And in the midst of this kind of he's established the kingdom the kingdom has been established but it's not fully here yet it hasn't fully been consummated in Jesus we we stand in this kind of in-between season where we see glimpses like glimpses and and hopes and pictures but we don't see the fullness the full reality of it and so there is going to be that longing that desiring and so that's what we're going to be walking through in 1st Peter now, the Bible tells me in 2 Timothy verse, chapter 4, verse 3, that there's going to be a time in which people are going to gather teachers who will tickle their ears or will tell them what they want to hear. That will not be what I'm doing over the next 17 weeks. In fact, most of the things that I'm going to say are going to be maybe somewhat offensive. Now, I don't sit in my office at my desk all week going, how am I going to offend people this week? How am I going to ruffle some feathers this week? In fact, I'm not sitting there trying to figure out. Ultimately, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to teach God's word, and God's word is offensive in some sense because it is contradictory to the ways of man. Most of the things that we read in 1 Peter that we're gonna study over the next 17 weeks are going to be challenging because they tell us the ways of God. And we need his power and strength and love to be poured out in our life to even be able to walk in obedience to them. They're contradictory. And because of that, it's gonna ruffle some feathers. So if you're not offended this week, you may be offended next week. I'm an equal opportunity offender, okay? Okay. Now, I will tell you, there's great hope. We won't live this out perfectly. And I just want to say that out of the gates, and that's what I'm thankful for. As Peter begins this chapter, he doesn't say, here's all the things that you do. He starts out by reminding us, here's who you are. And that's where we're going to settle in this morning. But before I get into who we are, it's important that we go back and and look at some of the redemptive history that kind of leads us up to this, this book in 1 Peter. Peter knew his Bible. Peter knew his Bible. In fact, in 2 Peter, I love this because I'm like, I can relate. In 2 Peter, he goes, Paul's really hard to understand, but I'm going to write some things to you. And, and I love that because Peter, I feel like he just kind of gets on our level. And he's like, hey, let me, let me help you understand. Paul's really difficult to understand. If you've read Romans and you've wrestled through it, you understand that. But here we got Peter just giving it to us in just plain, very simple language as to how we are to live as residents of the city of God in the city of man. And what he's writing to initially is when I say Peter knew his Bible, the Bible that Peter had was our Old Testament. And so Peter knew the, the redemptive history. He knew the storyline, the, the meta narrative of, of God's storyline. And, and this kind of leads us up to where 1 Peter jumps in. And, and for us in the Western church, we're like, well, maybe we don't know all the storyline. And so I just want to start there and kind of give us a three minute recap of how we get to 1 Peter, because it's important. So. If you're here for the first time, today's a good day. If you're like, hey, I don't have any clue what you're talking about, today's a great day because I'm basically going to give you Genesis up to First Peter today, okay? And also tell you the ending. So if you go back to the very start, Genesis, God created humanity. God created all the earth. God created all things, and he created humanity in his image to reflect his glory, to reflect his image to the world, to represent his rule on earth. But if you know the story, Adam and Eve chose to not listen to God, and they disobeyed God, and they rebelled against God, and they failed to obey. And God, being holy and just, he he said there would be consequences, And so God removed his presence from them, banning them from the garden. And apart from God, what happened? They experienced increasing sin, rebellion, chaos, death. It leads up to the Noah and the flood and and, and literally a wiping out of all humanity on earth. But God's not done. God continues to bestow grace and justice. And he, he raises up, and he chooses, out of all the people on earth, he raises up Israel, and he says, these are my God, this is God's chosen people. They began as a nation under Abraham, and it said under Abraham, God would bless the nation. They, the, the, his descendants would be like the stars in the sky. They would be a kingdom of priests. They were a holy nation. And as we move into Exodus we see that they begin to increase in number. And the Egyptian king becomes concerned and says, we must enslave these people because they're they're growing in such large numbers. So he enslaves them. And God comes and, and he rescues them and he brings them to Mount Sinai. He forms a covenant relationship with them. And because of this covenant, God's people, they would have special access to God's presence. And they too were set apart. They were to be a kingdom of priests, to represent to the world what God is like. They would show what it looks like to live under his rule and reign. And, and in a sense, God's calling them out. God, God's setting them apart as holy. would. That's actually what would cause separation from the world the way in which they lived, the way in which they walked in obedience to god would would set them apart they would be set apart from the world the way in which they would eat the way in which they would dress it would set them apart from the world and in exodus chapter 20 verse 24 we see all of this covenant relationship what it means to be in covenant relationship with god we read in Exodus chapter 24 that gonna, we're going to have some references to in our text today where, where Moses sprinkled blood upon the people. We're like, that's kind of strange. And what happened is Israel is going to constantly and frequently violate this, this covenant, and eventually God is going to send his people into exile. You're like, well, wait a second, God sent his, God sent his people into into exile because of their disobedience. God sent them into exile. We talked about that last week when we talked about being in Babylonian captivity, and here they are. They're going to spend 70 years. in, in under, under this, we, we studied that when we were, uh, it's probably been a year and a half ago, when we were walking through the book of Daniel. We see that that these people were brought out, and they were, they were brought into new customs, new beliefs. They were in a language that was not familiar. They were a part of practices that were not familiar. They were in a foreign land. If you've ever traveled outside of the United States and been somewhere where you don't speak the language, they don't do what you do, they don't eat what you eat, and you're like, this is, I feel foreign. He's, he's saying that's what it means to be in exile, they were exiled to a foreign land. But they were given a prophecy that they would eventually be rescued. They would eventually be brought out. And we see most of the Old Testament is about the people being in exile, waiting to come in, waiting for this king, waiting for this one, the savior of the world who would rescue, redeem. And in the person of Jesus, that happened. Jesus comes in. the Jerusalem's restored. They're able to go back. But It's not fully restored. The New Testament opens in Matthew by saying Jesus is the answer to the Babylonian exile. And while Jesus has come to rescue us from exile, we will still be on this earth until Jesus brings in his kingdom. And so we're waiting for this final restoration. Which means, that hasn't happened yet, which means we are in exile. You're in exile. The normal, normative state of believers in Jesus is one of exile. You don't fit. You don't belong. And that's why we've titled this series The Exile's Guide to Life. How do we as believers in Jesus live as exiles knowing that we have a future home but we're positioned here today how do we live? What do we do? And that is where First Peter opens up his, his story and, and going, this isn't just written to, these people aren't in exile in the sense that they've been sent from their, their, their home country and now they're in foreign land. It's, this is written to Jews and Gentiles. Anyone who's a believer in Jesus will feel, experience, this exile lifestyle, we're going to talk a lot about that, but let's jump into 1 Peter 1. We're going to cover two verses this morning. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, this opens up with an important identity statement because before we figure out how we are to live in exile, we need to understand who we are in exile. And that's what Peter starts this with. Peter starts with this language of the fact that you are elect exiles. And we're going to talk about each of, of those words. Uh, but he's saying we're, we're strangers. We, we are pilgrims. Uh, Philippians 3.20 that we covered in our series uh, right before Advent, we, we, we read that, that our citizenship is in heaven, that, that this is not our home so how do we we live in the midst of this and if you you read first peter one of the things that is important to know and i'll just say out of the gates is is that he's writing to people who are going to experience extreme suffering now we live in a time where we avoid suffering at all cost. In fact, we, we want to rally against any type of suffering. We call it injustice. We, 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 we don't really have a grasp or, or know how to really relate when it comes to suffering. And we wanna avoid, I want, to he, I want you to hear me say this morning that the Christian life is one of suffering. If you are not currently suffering, you will suffer. Encouraging message, right? Start the year. You will suffer. You will suffer. And, What happened this last week is a great picture of that. People with Jesus flags, not all of them, but some of them with Jesus flags did not necessarily, um, I I would say, did not represent Christianity the way we, we would want to. And so it creates some confusion, right? Like if there wasn't already a bad name on Christianity, Events like last week happen, and we're like, oh, man. So we're like constantly drawing sides. Hey, I want to make sure everyone knows I'm not on those guys' team, all right? Like whoever's team they are on, I'm not on their team, and I don't know that that's actually the team of Jesus. So I don't want to be on their team. And so there's some separation that's happening. But in reality, we look at what happened last week, and I think we go, some of it is, is like, man, that's really bad. It's terrible. But some of it's really good. And here's why it's good. Because nominal Christianity will go away. When I say nominal Christianity, it's saying, hey, I'm a Christian. Why? Because of the social benefit that it, it gives me. Like, if you live in the South and you're running for mayor, you better go to the local Baptist church. Because you're not going to become mayor if you don't go to the local Baptist. It's good for business. It's good on your resume. There's coming a time where following Jesus will not be good on your resume. Last week was a picture of that. We're like, I, I'm, not, I'm not one of those guys, right? Like, and we want to separate, and we want to be distancing. And the truth is, it's good for Christianity because it's, it's showing us that nominal Christianity will fall, will fall away. And real Christianity will surface. The real believers in Jesus will surface in this time. When we experience persecution and suffering, those who really follow Jesus are going to appear. And some are going to fade. And that's why it's important to understand this identity of what it means to be in exile. Okay? There, there, are, two, there, there are a couple different things, and I, I want to give some descriptions of what it means to be in exile. Um, but there's, there's a great possibility in exile, there's going to be some temptations. One of those is you completely lose your identity because you take on the identity of the world surrounding you, or you, you don't fully live into your identity as exiles, okay? So those are the two dangers, is that we don't live into our identity and we don't fully step to what it means to be an exile, or... We we fully lose that identity to a couple different uh, groups of exile. Okay? The first one is the chameleon exile, okay? And, and the chameleon exile is is one who just takes on the identity the identity of the surroundings they're always compromising the Word of God does not dictate what they do their circumstances their surrounding dictates what they do so if you're in the workplace and and people are talking about something that, that a little bit uncomfortable as, as a Christian instead of speaking up against or engaging in that conversation we just kind of either engage in it or we kind of sl- Flip away from the conversation altogether. But the reality is, is we just kind of take it on. Maybe you're a student and you're in college or you're in high school or you're in junior high and and the the constant tendency is the, the culture surrounds you is wanting you to be a chameleon. Take on our identity. That longing that you feel, that you experience of wanting to be home, just fully make yourself home here. Take on this identity. And so there, there's that compromising, the, the chameleon exile. What's interesting is I love, and, and I'm going to break down this verse as we kind of walk through this, is it starts with the word Peter. Now if you know anything about Peter, Peter is someone who buckled under pressure which I I love because here's Peter, and if we look at chapter 5, verse 12 in 1 Peter, he says, I want you to stand firm under this true grace. And we're like, how's Peter writing that? Because Peter didn't stand firm. Peter was scared. Peter failed. And we will too. We will too. Peter, when Jesus was going to be crucified... Peter was brought into the crowds of people. People identified him, recognized him as being with Jesus. And they looked at him and said, hey, aren't you one of those Christ followers? And three times Peter's like, not me. He's, he's, the, he's the chameleon exile. He's the compromising exile. He's like, I'm just going to, I just want to blend in. I don't want to be seen as one of those Christ followers. I just want to blend in. Here's what this, tells: Peter has gone through massive transformation, which means I think there's great hope for us. For those of us who sit here this morning and we're like, I'm afraid, I am concerned of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ in today's world. I look at the life of Peter and I go, that transformation can happen. We're asking the Spirit of God to do that in us to transform us, to change our name, to give us a name like the rock. That's what Peter means, to to be someone who is firm, to be someone who can stand, who doesn't sway back and forth with the winds of culture. There's the chameleon exile. There's the closet exile. This is the person who, I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm just going to be completely quiet about it and not let anyone know. I'm, the, I'm just the closet exile. I'm going to privatize my faith. Now, what's interesting is this, this really identifies with a person of just isolation. Like, I'm going to isolate myself from culture. And we read last week what, it, what was the Lord's wisdom and guidance to the, the church that was in captivity in in Babylon was to be engaged in the culture to to not run from the culture but be engaged in the culture to be fruitful we got the crazy exile they had to start with C I never start like that I want you to know I don't sit in my again it's like hey I need to come up with four C's usually there's three C's and I gotta come up with a fourth one because it's just on a flow so for lack of better terms it's the crazy exile the crazy exile is, it's not that God set them apart. It's not that the way in which God has called them to live has set them apart. They want to go above and beyond and like let people know they're set apart. And so these are just kind of the people you look at and you're like, they're, they're a little strange. These are like your holy huddle kind of people. And that's not always bad. But if I can give you an example, we... Uh, when I was doing student ministry, we went to the Greg Laurie Crusade uh, in Anaheim, California in 2007. So we were involved in, in that. We were, we were helping with that. And one of the things we were doing, we were inviting people to come to the Greg Laurie Crusade. And, and we were the crazy exiles. You know what the crazy exiles looked like? We were at Huntington Beach. And everyone is wearing their bathing suits, enjoying their, you know, time. And we're walking like full tennis shoes on the beach, jacket, you know, like backpack. And we're combing through the, the sand, inviting. But like we looked like weirdos. We didn't blend into the culture. And it wasn't because there's some command of God to, to wear your backpack and look like we did on the beach. It was just like we were just the strange, crazy people. It's not bad, but it's one way to live in exile. There's another way to be the the convincing exile or the compelling exile, and I think this is what we're going to see all throughout 1 Peter. When we read, we're going to see that the way in which we live is convincing, it's compelling, or it's... Or it's repulsive. I mean, people are wanting to get, there. there's a sense in which our good works, our way in which we live. Uh, 1 Peter chapter, chapter 3 talks about the way wives should live to win over an unbelieving husband. There's a way in which you live under the authority of government to, to win them to Jesus. There's a way in which we live within our culture that becomes compelling and convincing, and we give an answer for the hope we have in Jesus. That's what this is all about, becoming convincing in exile. And this is what it really means to be in the world, but not of the world. We have engagement in the city of God, but we're, not, we're or in the city of man, but we're not necessarily of that. We're not a citizen of that. We, our primary citizenship is in heaven. That's primary. And so the world will constantly be at you to get cozy, to get rid of your exile identity. And what Peter is telling us to do here is don't run from that. Receive it. Own it. Be the exile God has called you to be. Take on the identity of an exile. We are to find our home as exiles. Now, it's not doing things like I, we don't have to go out this afternoon and be like, okay, Justin called us, take on our identity as an exile. I'm going to let my neighbors know, everyone in my neighborhood know. I'm an exile. I'm gonna... Here's what I'm saying. When you follow and obey God's commands of what he asks us to do, it will be contradictory to the things of this world. You will look different. You'll look different. And, and, and that's what he, he's calling us to in this text. But he says you're not just an exile. Peter writing to these exiles; these are these are all the Jews and Christians that are spread out in Asia Minor across Turkey. This would cover an area of about three hundred thousand square miles. He's writing to them, encouraging them. He's giving them. He's reminding them that they have a name. You're an exile. You have an identity. But not only that, he says you are an elect exile. Now. There's going to be division over this. Okay? What it means to to be a part of the elect. If there's anything that has divided like Christians in the in the primarily I would say in the in the last 15 to 20 years as maybe the reformed community has kind of stepped up, there's there's a major push against this and it's kind of resurfacing, but it's this idea of how God chooses. Now, immediately, when we talk about God's elect, ultimately what that means is, as it says in the next verse, that based on the foreknowledge of God the Father, He chooses those who would become His adopted children. Now, the, the question and the, the wrestle and the tension of that is, some of us don't like the way God chooses some of us, that, that makes us uncomfortable. And here, here's what I would say. We, we have to do something with that word. The Bible in Romans chapter 8 talks about the foreknowledge of God, that he has predestined those who would come to faith. He, we read here that, that he, we, he calls the elect. We read in, in Ephesians in chapter 1 that before the foundations of the world, he chose some that would be saved. And, and, and some of us, we, we like, well, I don't really like that. And, and that we have to do something. We can't take scissors out and cut these verses out of our Bible and say, I don't agree to that. And in reality, I, I would just have you lean in this morning and just say like, there's going to be a lot of things that you don't like in First Peter. And we don't get to dictate what we choose to follow and what we don't choose to follow. If God is God, then we trust God, we obey God, and we come to an understanding that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. The way in which he does things, thank God they're not like us because we're broken and our world is broken. It's just an indicator of how messed up our world currently is is an indicator of what we do when we put our minds together. So let's be thankful That that there is a God, and this is meant to be very encouraging, who chooses. Who chooses. That he predetermines. And this is not, I want to be clear, this is not God having foresight into the future and going, I know at one point in Justin's life, Justin will choose me, so I'm going to choose him. That's not how it works. And, And if that rubs you the wrong way this morning, I would just wrestle with it. Don't get mad, just wrestle with it. Open God's word, begin to study, wrestle. All throughout college, I wrestled with that. I had to to come, what does it mean? But there's a sense of it should, number one, move us to humility, humility. Because God didn't choose us based on anything good in us. God didn't choose us because he thought Justin was going to be this awesome, amazing, good-looking fellow that's going to stand up in front of a church someday and lead people and have a family. Like, he didn't choose me because of that. He didn't choose me because of anything good in me. He chose me in my wrath, in my sinfulness, in my trespasses and sin, in my darkness, in my death. He came, he set me alive in Christ. And and really what this text talks about is it tells us how you were saved. It said, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, God chose you before the foundations of the world. This should encourage you. Why? Because when you're all alone, maybe you think back in the last year and you go, man, I, I spent the year just isolated. And, and, I, and I think about him writing to Jews and Gentiles for so long, just Israel was his chosen people. But here this letter is sent out to Gentiles, and so Gentiles are going to the mailbox, and they're opening the mailbox, and they're like, to an elect exile. I'm one of those. That's good news. I'm chosen. God chose me. That's great news. There should not be one of us who is upset about that. God chose us. And the reason why is because if left to our own devices and left to our own thoughts, we would never choose God. We would never choose God. God in his foreknowledge chose you, it goes on, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, when we read the Apostles' Creed this morning, we we read God, Son, Spirit. That was the the flow. But God, Spirit, Son is actually how salvation comes into life. God the Father calls us. The Holy Spirit is, is, is what initially moves in our life. No one comes to the Father but by the Holy Spirit drawing them. And so we may say, because in America we love choice, and so we're like, I chose God. And in rea- you can think that. You did choose him, but he chose you first. Yours was a response you responded to the call of God because the Holy Spirit came into your life. He called you. He motivated your heart because you would not choose him. And it is the, the son cleanses you, Jesus. He goes to the cross. He cleanses you. And he sets you free from guilt and shame and condemnation. Why? So that you would walk in obedience. That's what it says. And so this whole text right here, he just sets it up. Hey, I'm about to tell you how to live in a city that's not your own. You need to know who you are, first of all. You need to remember who you are and whose you are. You need to remember your calling. He calls them. This this sense that they've been dispersed. You've been dispersed. You've, You've been sent out on purpose. Because you've been given a specific calling and mission, wherever God has placed you, wherever God has you, the very fact that you're in Utah, God has you here for a reason. God has you in your neighborhood, in your apartment complex, in your workplace. You are dispersed. He doesn't want us all to just huddle together. In a sense, we come together on Sunday mornings to celebrate, to be reminded of the mission God has for us, and then he disperses us out all across our city. And we may feel alone, but we get to come in every Sunday and be reminded that we're not alone, that we have a people that we're on mission with. But he disperses us across our city. He sends us out to be on mission, not to blend in, but to be his chosen exile sent one he said he does all this he chooses us he elects us he predestines us he calls us he saves us his Holy Spirit draws us the Son cleanses us for obedience in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. We've been called to obedience. Now, I honestly, I am growing concerned because very few Christians know their Bibles. We we don't know the ways of God. We're we're constantly inundated with the ways of man, the ways of the world. And in so many ways, they they seem like the natural way to us. This is the way we should go. And, And we need to know God's word. We need to know what it is that God's calling us to walk in obedience to. Because what this text tells us is, that, that he gives us his grace and mercy and peace, and that's been poured into our lives to motivate us to walk in obedience. And so we need to, we need to know, otherwise we'll drift. You'll walk in the ways of the world. When I, when I told people uh, that we were moving to Utah to plant a church, like people who are believers in Jesus even thought we were crazy. They're like, why would you do that? That sounds like a terrible place to go and plant a church. And I'm like, that's the very place God wants us to go. When I think about how we use our resources, our money, the world is going to question. But we, we hold to text that says, do not lay up for yourself treasures here on earth. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And so out of faith, we believe in that verse, and so we respond to it. Or maybe we read verses of what it means to walk in purity. And and, and our ways, they they just look strange compared to the world. We need to know what God's asked us to do so that we can walk in obedience to it. I love what one commentator said. He said, as elect exiles, they receive definition and direction from the future, not this present world. They receive their direction and definition from God, not the world. That's important. And the reason that's important is because that's what it means to be a follower of Christ, is we receive our direction from him. J. Gresham Machen was a, a Presbyterian pastor, and I'll, I'll close with this. In a 1932 essay, he he wrote, basically, we talked a few weeks in Hebrews about drifting. Uh, we When we talked about Daniel, we talked about drifting, just going, like, just following the stream of culture. Like, what does it look like to go upstream? J. Gresham Machen really, uh, I think defines, and it's a long paragraph here, so hang with me. But he really defines what it looks like to, to be an exile in today's world. I think it's on the screening, follow along. He said, there are indeed those who tell us that no defense of our faith is necessary. Uh, let, me, let me back up, let me say one thing first. One of the, one of the, the reasons I, I wanna share this, that I, I wanna preface it with this. A lot of us look at, to, to, to be an exile in today's world, some of the things we've talked about and really of just going, of blending into culture. Um, one of the things that, that, that a lot of times we begin to think is, is that Jesus just wants us to be nice. We're just supposed to be nice people, good people. Um, when we live in obedience to the call of God, there's going to be things that we do that, that don't seem nice. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 through 16, it says, some of us, when we live in the way God's called us to do, it's going to be send out a fragrance to the world that's going to be death to death. It's going to be, it's like, I do not want that around. And to some, it's going to be life to life. We wanna be careful as we live in exiles in today's world that we don't just so cozy up to the world in hopes to inform and engage culture and just be so cozy with it. What Jay Gresham Machin is going to say is, there's no way you can cozy up to the world. It's not going to create comfortability. A pastor friend in, in Boulder, he said, a lot of times when we think about being missional in today's world, a lot of times we follow these three guiding values. Be nice above all, keep peace with the world, and avoid the parts of Christianity that make society uncomfortable. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. That's what Jay Gresham Machen responds to. I'll read this, then we'll close. They are, there are indeed those who tell us that no defense of the faith is necessary. The Bible needs no defense, they say. Let us not be forever defending Christianity, but instead, let us go forth joyously to propagate Christianity. Let's just, let's just be what we're for. Let's just tell people what we're for in when it comes to the things of Jesus. But I've observed one curious fact. When people talk this way about propagating Christianity without defending it, the thing that they're propagating is pretty not to sure to be Christianity at all. They are propagating an anti-intellectual, non-doctrinal modernism, and the reason why it requires no defense is simply that it is so completely in accord with what the age already believes. It causes no more disturbance than does a chip that floats downward with the stream. In order to be an adherent of it, a man does not need to resist anything at all. He needs only to drift and automatically into modernism will be one of the most approved and popular kind. One thing need always be remembered. True Christianity now as always is radically contrary to the natural man and it cannot possibly be maintained without a constant struggle. Certainly, a Christianity that avoids argument is not a Christianity of the New Testament. The New Testament is full of arguments in defense of the faith. Here's the thing if you want to be a Christ follower, you will be in exile, you will experience suffering, it will be challenging, it will be contradictory to the ways of the world. And that is why it is so key when you live in this world and you go, I don't know where I belong. We have this eternal community of Father, Son, Holy Spirit that we can hitch our wagon to, another great Texas saying. That, that we draw near to this eternal community that we've been invited into the Father, Son, Holy Spirit relationship that his presence is with us. When you feel like you don't fit, he's given us a community. He's given us a people to draw near to. And he closes that may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This isn't just, hey, good day, let me close my saying and just write some nice words like salutations, you know, like, this is him saying, this is literally how you're going to walk in obedience and be able to live as an elect exile in the world. You need the grace and peace of God to come upon you. You need the grace of God to come upon you. I want you to close your eyes, bow your heads for just a second. I I just want to invite you into a time of response. The band's going to come up and play. What we're invited into when when Peter prays, may the the peace and grace of God come upon you. He's saying, "I, I want the love the favor of god of what he's done for you in christ jesus to flood your heart to flood your heart the hope today is not that you would walk out of these doors with more things to do that wouldn't be a gospel centered sermon the hope is is that you would walk out of these doors with someone to worship that you would walk out of these doors with someone to praise because he is the one who's bringing a floodgate of grace and mercy into your heart. And when we live under the floodwaters of his grace and mercy, that is what empowers us and motivates us to live into the things that he's going to talk about, how we are to live in exile. We can't do it on our own. We don't have the power, the strength, the wisdom to do it. We need his grace and mercy to pour out into our lives. And so God comes and he sends Jesus. He sends Jesus to the cross. He sends Jesus to the cross to take on our sin, to take on our punishment, to take on our condemnation so that we can be set free to live. He did that to show you that you are loved, that you are chosen, that you are cared for, that you're adopted, that you're not an orphan, that you're a part of a family. And though you live in this world and you may feel alone and you may feel isolated, he has brought you into an eternal family. And if you're here this morning and, and you're, you're saying, that's not true of me, I just would encourage you. The very prayer that we sang earlier, Lord, I need you, I need you, I, oh, I need you. That's the, de- the declaration of our heart that we would just cry out, we need him. And that prayer is not just for people who are outside of the faith in Jesus and needing to come to faith in Jesus. That's every single one of us. We need Jesus. We cannot live into the things that God has called us to live into without him. We need him. And so my prayer, our prayer, is may the grace and mercy of God flood your hearts this morning. Flood your hearts this morning. Lord Jesus, I pray and ask that you would do just that. That you would show us that that we're not alone. Though we feel alone, we're never alone. We're not alone. We're chosen, we're adopted. Lord, thank you for calling us out. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to change and transform our lives. We could never do it on our own. Thank you for sprinkling with us with blood in doing so, you brought us into the covenant family. You brought us into this family. You, you transformed us. You changed us. And you're, you're doing that even today. You're you're changing our hearts. We thank you for that. We love you for that. We praise you for that. And we give glory to you for that. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to encourage you. <clears throat> in the next few weeks, um, we're going to be covering a lot of ground. And... Uh, we, we talked this primarily this morning, and, and who are we? We're gonna be talking primarily as we move forward, how, how do we live? And I just wanna encourage you, if there's a, a specific question you have, I, you know, as I think about what it looks like to navigate the world in which we live in, I, I'm like, there's so many questions. And while the, there's one interpretation to the text we're gonna read, there's many applications. And so I would just encourage you over the coming weeks, if there's specific questions that you have as to how we live into this world, would you just send me an email? No questions out of bounds. Just say, hey, how do do we do this? And as those things surface in the text, we hope to, to do our best to answer those questions. We wanna do that. We wanna equip you to live in this world. All right? I love you guys. I have great hope for us. I have great hope for us that we can be transformed that we can as it say we will stand firm in his grace that's the hope that's the prayer this morning let's stand and sing together